0: And you've made us as beings that are sexual and it's for our benefit and it's our blessing. And so, Father, help us to understand uh, sexuality and sex and the way you've given it to us and the way it is a blessing. And we pray, um, help us to be people who are faithful to you and look forward to the great day when we'll see you return. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I want to speak today uh, and I've called the message The Joy of Sex Now, if you grew up in the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s, you'll probably know the title of my talk actually comes from a book that was a bestseller called The Joy of Sex. And The Joy of Sex uh, was a book written by a doctor called Dr Alex Comfort in the 1970s. Uh, It spent 11 weeks in the uh, top of the New York Times bestseller list and more than 70 weeks in the top five. From 1972 to 1974. Uh, It was not a Christian book. Uh, It was a book written uh, at the beginning of the sexual revolution to really help people experience, as the title says, the joy of sex. And it's worth saying, uh, the book was not well received by religious circles. Uh, In fact, you could surmise um, that it was actually rejected. many religious organisations tried to ban its publication and its sale. And in many ways, um, that book and the response of the church tells you, uh, I think, a lot about how we view the world and how we view sexuality, or typically, if I can say, the church has, through history. Uh, It's been something that has been enjoyed, if I can say, outside the walls of the church, uh, but the church hasn't known what to do with. Uh, and to have a talk called The Joy of Sex is not something that would have been commonplace many centuries ago. In fact, the church has a very checkered history when it comes to this topic of sex and sexuality. Uh, Let me give you a quote from a famous atheist from the 20th century. His name is Bertrand Russell. He wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian and he said when talking on the issue of sex and the Christian view of it, well, he said the Christian view is morbid and unnatural. And let me say, he had good reason to say that, very good reason. Um, Let me take you back. I want to just do a little tour de force of church history uh, to give us kind of a backdrop to this topic as we come to it today. Um, When you look back in history, there's a number of key events. One of the key events was the Council of Nicaea. Uh, People may be familiar with that, um, probably many of you are not. Um, The Council of Nicaea was in 325 AD. Now, what was famous about that date was it's where the Trinitarian description of God was hammered out and we have what's called the Nicene Creed. Uh, It is a very important theological statement which clarified that God is Father, He is Son and He's Holy Spirit. And that's why, uh, if I can say, that council is very well known. What is not well known is also at that council they proposed celibacy for ministers. Very interesting. Now, it didn't get up. Now, you don't have to read much of church history to know that this idea did take root and it wasn't too uh, too long before celibacy was espoused as a more holy way of life. Many of you are probably familiar with C.S. Lewis. Um, Who's read C.S. Lewis' Narnia books? Who's seen the movies? Okay. Um, That was a sideline activity for C.S. Lewis. Um, his main activity was actually a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature at Magdalen College, Cambridge University. He was a very, very heavyweight uh, in the world of medieval literature and, if I can say, English studies. And he writes this in terms of what the medieval church said about sex and sexuality. I'll read to you. According to the medieval view, passionate love itself was wicked and did not cease to be wicked if the object of it were your wife. So just drink that one in. Um, If you're married, you can't passionately make love to either your wife or to your husband. If a man had once yielded to this emotion, he had no choice between guilty and innocent love before him. He had only the choice of repentance or else of different forms of guilt. Now, that's the teaching that reigned and the understanding of sexuality through the Middle Ages. And so, is it any wonder that the church has suffered confusion and guilt when it comes to this subject? And it's not surprising that the church has not known what to do with this book called The Song of Songs. I'm going to come back to that. Now, you might ask the question, why is this? Because when you read Song of Songs, um, I'm going to be putting forward that you get a very positive view of sexuality and sex rightly enjoyed within marriage. It's a very positive view. How did the church come to this point of saying that a husband can have sex with his wife but if I can put it in my own words, don't enjoy it? Well, you need to go back to the history of uh, philosophical thought and to a guy called Plato. And I'm sure you're very familiar with Plato. Um, Plato had a number of key ideas. He posited that the highest ideals in life Uh, were those of ideas and not our senses. In fact, our senses lead us astray from the pure form of ideas. Now, if that's lost you, um, if I can put on the screen there, ideas and rationality are superior to body and passion. Body and passion is a lower level of life. The higher level is being able to think pure thoughts about the forms Now, this way of thinking, you might think, is that biblical? Well, it's not biblical. When you look at Hebraic thought, in other words, the thought patterns that originate in the Old Testament, what you see is no separation of body and soul in the way that Plato posited. But yet Plato's thinking has greatly affected the church and it's why you see even in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea uh, this move to see that the passions of the human body are something to be avoided. Now, one of the great figures of church history is a guy called Augustine. I'm sure you've probably heard of Augustine. He lived and wrote in the 6th century and he was a great leader. But he wrote in the 6th century that sex was only to be engaged in in marriage for the begetting of children. Uh, Procreation was positive. In other words, you could have sex to have kids. But the passion and pleasure of procreation was not. For him, higher levels of holiness were found in celibacy. So if you don't have sex, you're a more godly person, a more holy person. And you can see the impact of this in terms of the way uh, the Catholic Church moved. Priests remain celibate because it's a higher way of spirituality. Now, it's worth just saying, it's not just the Catholic Church that has struggled with this. Uh, One of the great Bible commentators of the Reformation and post-era in the 16th, 17th centuries there's a guy called Matthew Henry. Now, Matthew Henry is one of the great ones. If you talk to, if I can say, reformed Anglican evangelical ministers, most of us will have a copy of his works on our shelves. He wrote a commentary on every verse in the Bible. They are very well worth reading. He has got an incredible insight into the world of the Bible and into the human heart. And so he's always worth reading. The language is slightly difficult because it's from a different generation. He's always worth reading, except when it comes to the Song of Songs. Um, Let me tell you what he said. He said about this book, when we apply ourselves to the study of this book, we must not only with Moses and Joshua put up our shoe from our foot, for we're on holy ground, but we also must forget that we have bodies. And he wrote that this book is all about Christ and his love for the church and discipleship and your love for the Lord Jesus. And you're waiting for him to return. Now, he is a good man, but he's a product of his age where within the church they have struggled to affirm, if I can say, the beauty of sexuality. And the product that has come is uh, that within, if I can say, church circles, particularly of past eras, Um, There's been a guilt that's been associated with sex. Sex is not something that you can enjoy rightly in the context of marriage. Uh, There's something dirty about it. There's something, if I can say, of a lower level to it. Holiness and passionate lovemaking don't go together if you want to be a godly person. That's the history of how the church has interacted on this topic. And I want to say it is uh, greatly mistaken. Uh, When we come to Song of Songs, what we are seeing is a very positive picture of sexuality, of intimacy, of romance and beauty. It is a very beautiful book and it's a very powerful book. It is said, as we've seen, in the context of a young man and his maiden, his uh, lover, And they are married and they are enjoying all of the gifts of romance and intimacy and sexuality. And the passage we come to today is really at the centre of this song. And as we've seen, this is a song. It's poetic. And at the centre of the song, the husband and the wife are making love. It is very powerful. That's what we're going to read today. So if you've got your Bibles there, keep them open. Let's look. Uh, if you are married, it's quite okay to um, hold hands with your wife. If you're not, that's okay. Um, let's give everyone a hug today. I think if you're single, we all need hugs. So give someone who's single a hug afterwards. We all need to feel that sense of affection and love in our life. And I've got three points for you this morning. The first is this marvelous beauty, because I think one of the impacts of the way, if I can say, Plato has affected um, the way we have thought in the church is a denigrating of the aesthetic. The aesthetic in the sense of the beauty of this physical world that we live in. And when you come to Song of Songs, uh, there is no doubt that there is, if I can say, this enjoyment of the aesthetic world that we live in. Beauty is marvellous. Now, no doubt the Bible warns us about beauty, that it, uh, if I can say, that we can be fooled and distracted by beauty. There's a couple of examples. Proverbs 31, I'll read you. Uh, The famous description of the godly woman, it says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, it's worth saying, um, it's not knocking beauty, it's warning you about beauty, that it will fade. Over and against, if I can say, the godliness of a person which won't fade. Or in Proverbs 6, verse 25, do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. In other words, uh, beauty can lead people astray romantically to cross the boundary of adultery. In other words, there's warnings about the power of beauty and how it can deceive us. But yet, in and of itself, beauty is never spoken about as being wrong or evil, uh, but rather it is to be enjoyed and noticed. Uh, and that's what you see at various parts of the Bible. It's neither hostile towards beauty uh, nor dismissive of it, but rather it recognises and extols it on various occasions. Now, um, I just went through and found um, the number of times it talks about women being beautiful. Now, there's all sorts of ways. Creation is beautiful. Sarah Sarah is spoken of, as in the wife of um, Abraham, as being very attractive, Rachel is very beautiful, Tamar is very beautiful, Rebecca, very beautiful, Abigail and the list goes on. You see, when you look um, at the Bible, you see that beauty is something that is extolled and enjoyed and this is exactly what you see here in chapter 4 of Song of Songs. Let's read together. Um, I'll read it but read with me if I can say watching along. Chapter 4 verse 1. What you've got here in the first seven verses is in what's called in the Middle East, a wasp. Um, It's a technical term just to describe, if I can say, a poetic form of describing someone's beauty. And you would list all the characteristics that strike you. And this is typically said um, on occasions like in a wedding in a Middle Eastern setting, uh, that the beauty of the bride or the husband, the groom, is proclaimed. Uh, it is enjoyed. It is noticed. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just drawn. Now, let me say, guys, that's probably not what I'd say to use those exact words about your wife, okay? Work out some other analogies. They obviously worked for him back then. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon, your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I'll go to the mountain of Myrrh and to the hill of incense." All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. A couple of comments. Um, What's interesting is we saw uh, when Mike spoke week one, the woman herself does not think she is a 10. She is apologising for her beauty earlier in the Song of Songs. But the husband thinks she is a 10. I think that's a very profound thing to notice. This woman is the only woman for his eyes and he is stunned by her. That's worth saying there's three other of these long descriptions that uh, you see in the Song of Songs. Three are by the husband, one is by the woman. One of them, if I can say, is an admiration of public beauty. It is just a description of the face. In other words, there is a beauty that we can all enjoy. It is a marvellous thing that God has made us the way we are and all of us are beautiful in our own way. And the husband looks on this woman and sees her beauty. The second thing to point out is, obviously there is, this is quite an intimate moment. The woman is actually not wearing much at all. She has a veil. We see that, how beautiful you are. Your eyes behind your veil are dove's. Your hair is like a flock of goats. She also has a necklace. um, But there's not much else. She's got long hair. That helps cover up something. The picture you have here is the woman is standing before her husband naked with just a veil to cover herself. This is a very intimate moment. Later on, as you move, uh, chapter 6 and 7, Uh, you see a description where the man praises her from her feet upwards to the top of her hair and every part in between. Now, I don't want to give today's sermon an R rating. It's got kind of an M rating, okay? Um, The poetry is there to elicit an emotional response from us and to impact us. It's not for me, if I can say, to fill in the gaps, The way the poetry works is to evoke a response in you. And what you see here is a husband who is in love with his wife and she is standing before him with not much on and there is beauty radiating from her that he notices and admires and he, if I can say, gives to her this wonderful, if I can say, description of her beauty so that she can if I can say, be built up in who she is. And she does the same later on. You see, the world says, show all, tell everyone. The world we live in has no sense of sacredness when it comes to nudity. We live in a world that is bombarded with flesh. Uh, It's on the TV, Uh, It's at the movies, uh, it's in magazines, it's broadcast on billboards. um, It is everywhere with pornography. You cannot escape in this world flesh. I remember being down at the beach. I was with uh, another family. Uh, It was at Queenscliff and we were fishing. It was 6.30 at night in summertime. And I looked across and there was another young family and you could not help but notice... That this woman, who was with two kids and her uh, and her husband, was there wearing a g-string on the beach, and I'm thinking this is just outrageous. Um, with her two young kids, I'm thinking, and she's bending over. I'm thinking this is not helpful. Flesh is everywhere. Um, the other day, I'm coming out of the surf, and this woman just took everything off to flush out the sand. Now, that's just one example. You all know the reality of what we live in. The world says, show all. Dresses get tighter and tighter, uh, less and less. And one of the results is this. The sacredness of the naked form has dissolved because there is something very special very erotic, very wonderful about the human form. We are made for each other as husband and wife in marriage to enjoy intimacy in a way that is special and is to be within the bounds of that marriage relationship. And there's something incredibly beautiful about the way God has made us. But you can see here in the Song of Songs there is a beauty that is admired publicly. You see this beautiful woman's face and yet there's a beauty within the privacy of the bedroom that the husband and wife get to enjoy of each other. The world says show all, tell everyone. Uh, The word says show each other and rejoice in it. That's what it's saying here to us. There is something to be celebrated in the privacy and sacredness of a sexual union of a husband and wife and it's to be enjoyed. You see, what I want to say to all of us is um, I think the church has had a long and bad history when it comes to sexuality and also beauty. Um, We should recognise the beauty we see in each other It is a God-given thing. Now, people can take that way too far and focus completely on the external at the detriment of who we are as people. But who we are as people is not just a soul. That is Plato and that is wrong. Who we are are people that have emotions, that have spirit and we have bodies. That is Christian. And you see that most affirmed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be resurrected as people with bodies. And our beauty is something that is God given, and we should appreciate, we should look after ourselves, and we should present ourselves if we are married in a way that, if I can say, enhances what God has given us. And so, if you're a married couple, Um, Let your partner know how beautiful they are. Let your partner experience in a sacred way how beautiful you are when you are alone and in the mood for romance. I know that's not all the time. I have worked that one out. And I want to say to the singles, um, enjoy this beautiful world that we live in and the relationships that you can have in a right way. Obviously, not sexually. That is confined to the bedroom for married couples. But we need to, if I can say, I want to say to the singles, enjoy this world and the beauty within it and the relationships that you can have. And if I can say to the married people, um, you must look after them as well and include them because that's a very important thing in church life that together we are a family. Well, that's my first point, um, Beauty. Let's get to uh, the next point, sexual bonding. Building on the natural bodily beauty um, comes the whole reality of sexual intercourse. And when it comes to sex, I think that our Western world says sex actually means nothing. Whereas what you see here is sex is incredibly powerful and it means unity. I say sex means nothing because I think the dominant worldview we have today is what I'd call a naturalist worldview. We are just in a physical world. This world is all there is. Uh, We're a product of evolution. And sexuality and sex is just, if I can say, part of that evolutionary process. Uh, It's a natural biological activity that we should all be free to partake of when we want and within whoever we want. In fact, there's very, very, very few, if I can say, rules now in our society about sexuality. The only one, if I can say, that stands out strongly is pedophilia. Uh, What you must not do, the world says, is interfere with children. And let me say, I totally agree. Uh, We must protect our children. But yet the church and the Bible proclaims a far higher view of sex, And I say sex means nothing. I mean, condoms are available everywhere. Uh, I was down at Little Manly the other day. I go fishing down there and go out from the boat ramp. And I came in just to get the sand off my feet in the public toilet block there where lots of young families go. It's a great young family beach down at Little Manly. And what do I see on the wall right next to where you wash your hands? A condom machine. Now, what does that tell you about the world we live in? Do it whenever you want, even out here. Sex means nothing today. Porn is everywhere. Adultery is commonplace. Um, You just sleep around. Sex means nothing. It's no longer special. It's no longer sacred. That is until you are the partner that's been cheated on. Uh, That is until you're the one night stand that feels empty in the morning. That is until you're the pregnant woman with a child from someone you barely know. But when we come to the Song of Songs, um, you see that sex is this incredibly powerful and passionate activity given to couples for a purpose. The purpose is unity. And I want to say the way it's achieved is through pleasure. This is the incredible thing. Um, the gift of sex and sexuality is not primarily for bearing of children, though that will happen, as we all know. Sex is given to unify a husband and wife together in the most enjoyable way. It is designed to be pleasurable, to bring unity. That's the incredible blessing of it. And when you see the Song of Songs, that's exactly what you experience. Let's read from verse 8. "'Come with me from Lebanon, my bride.'" She's standing there just with a veil on. There's not much else. "'Come with me. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the leopards. You've stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace.'" How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. Um, This is no wham, bam, thank you, man. In one minute it's all over. This is a man romancing his wife, enjoying the occasion. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Note those words. This love that she will offer him is not for public display. It is not for anyone to enjoy. She's described as a garden that has been locked up. That phrase will return at the end of the book. We'll look at that next week. You see, she is a woman who has kept herself for this man, this one man. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree. There's a sense of which every sense is being aroused in this act of making love. He loves her. She's kept herself for him. She looks divine. She smells wonderful. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming from Lebanon. And then she responds and she invites him in. And all the commentators say, this is where sexual intercourse is taking place. Um, Awake north wind, come south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And you see here, if I can say, the teaching of 1 Corinthians that the body of the wife is not her own, it is her husband. And the body of the husband's is not his own, it belongs to his wife. Come into his garden. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And the lover, the male, responds, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride, I've gathered my myrrh with my spice, I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey, I've drunk my my wine and my milk and there's this sense, if I can say, of deep, passionate enjoyment but also satisfaction as he compliments her on how wonderful she is. And just have a look at verse 5. This verse is unique in the Old Testament and it's unique because it has the most uses of the word my in any other verse in all of the Old Testament. Now, when you read the original language, which is Hebrew, it's not a separate word as we have in our English. It's attached to the word to qualify the word. And it's just repeated time after time. My sister, my bride, I've gathered my myrrh with my spice, I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey, I've drunken my wine and my milk. You see, having entered his wife in sexual intercourse, he's found paradise and he loves it. His wife is now his. And I would say also the wife has allowed him in and he is now hers. They possess each other in this incredibly powerful uniting activity. You see, what has happened is we've returned to the Garden of Eden. That's what's being described here, the language. It is a return to the Garden of Eden. They were naked and they were unashamed. And the two became one flesh. And that is what Song of Songs is proclaiming. This act of sexual intercourse in the most pleasurable way, arousing all of the senses unites the husband and the wife together so they become one. It is a sacred moment. Sex is not just for the creation of children, as Augustine taught. Sex is a wonderful, positive blessing from God for married couples to unite them as husband and wife so that they fulfil the Genesis mandate and become one flesh. It is for pleasure, pleasure together with your partner in this incredibly powerful way to bind you together. It's wonderful. I loved what um, Patricia Wirakun said when she spoke on sex. She said, the problem with people sleeping around is this. Um Every time you have sex, it's like you're a jar. It's not the most erotic imagery. Uh, Forgive me for that. Um, It's like you're a jar of superglue or a tube of superglue. And every time you have sex with someone, uh, a bit of superglue goes out and gets stuck to that person. And if you have sex with another partner, some more superglue goes and gets stuck to that partner. You leave a piece of you with them. And he said, the problem we've got today is people have so many partners they've got no superglue left. You see, they cannot anymore bond because they've given themselves to so many people. That's why sex is just for marriage because you literally are bonding physically together in the most intimate and powerful, and passionate, and sacred of ways. It's why pornography is so wrong. It's why adultery is so wrong, because you are bonding not just with your wife or your husband, but you're bonding with someone else and giving yourself to them. And every time you give yourself to another, it takes away your capacity to bond with your one, the wife or husband that you've promised you'll give yourself to. We don't have a low view of sex in the church. We have an incredibly high view, a sacred view that this is such an incredible blessing from God that we wait until we're married so that we can enjoy it and its effects of bringing unity and oneness for a husband and wife. And that's why I say to people who are single, wait. And I want to say a couple of words. Um, I want to commend those who are waiting. Uh, we often will say, and rightly so, um, "Be careful uh, if you're sleeping around. Um, you need to repent." But I know there's many people here in the church who are waiting, and who are being faithful. That in their situation in life they are single, and they are seeking to honour God in their singleness. By not bonding with others, by not partaking sexually in whatever form that this world is offering and by finding their satisfaction and meaning in life in the service of God and in, if I can say, the right fellowship of his people. And if you are single here today, see that sex is something that is given for a special purpose. Find your satisfaction In knowing God, because I'm going to say my last point sex is not ultimate, God is ultimate. And find meaning in the one who is ultimate and find intimacy in appropriate ways with the friends and family that we have here in church life. But to the marriage, I want to say um, make love and keep doing it. You might be surprised to hear your minister say that. If I can put it more bluntly, you need to have sex. Um, And the reason is this. I often say, and I'll ask couples, and I don't do a lot of marriage marriage couples counselling, are you having sex is a question I'll often ask. Now, I ask it because I think sex is a barometer for what's happening in a relationship. It's not the reason why you're having troubles, but you'll often see the outworking of that in that the sex life has ceased. And I'm always concerned when I hear that sex has stopped happening in marriages. And the reason for it is this. It's the activity God has given us to powerfully unite us. And so if it's not happening, it's probably because there are deeper issues that are pulling the couple apart that need to be worked on. And sex is something that is very powerful and very helpful. And let me say, it doesn't always have to be, if I can say, mind-blowing. It is good just to keep making love to each other. Sometimes it's very mundane. One of our problems today is the way the porn industry has impacted us. It has changed what people think is normal and what... You should expect you see if you had no porn and you had no naked bodies paraded week by week in front of you the only naked body you would see if you're a married person would be your spouses wouldn't you so you would never have to compare and that's one of the problems of porn it causes people to think oh She or he is not like Harry Sixpack. I'll leave the comparisons there. Whereas if you only had your husband or wife to see naked, you would be blown away every time and that's why it is so right to avoid seeing flesh so that the one you do see is the one that blows your mind. And arouses your senses and makes you want to make love. Do you hear what I'm saying? So, couples, may your sexual activity be rich. Sometimes it will be mind blowing. Sometimes it'll be less so. All of it really helpful to keep you being united as one flesh. Let me finish with these words. Um, I think what you see, thirdly, in the Song of Songs is this, ecstatic worship. Um, Song of Songs, I think, shows us that sex is not ultimate but rather it's a blessing from God and a bridge to God. You see, the world we live in says that sex is ultimate. Even though it's not special, it's ultimate and that's kind of the bizarre thing about the way we uh, live in this world. Um, Sex has got its own houses of worship. Um, There's strip clubs, there's brothels, there's adult stores, it's got its own high priests and priestesses. There's porn stars, there's suggestive singers, there's lingerie models. I was thinking, don't you think it's fascinating that the face of David Jones, Miranda Kerr, now the contract's just ceased, but where did Miranda Kerr come to fame? This wonderful family shopping place. Miranda Kerr was a Victoria's Secret model, modelling lingerie, and yet she is the high priestess or has been for David Jones. She's now for Qantas. C.S. Lewis wrote this on erotic love. The real danger seems to me not that the lovers will idolise each other, but that they will idolise Eros himself. In other words, that we will make erotic sex God. And that is wrong. Sex should create a hunger for something infinitely more beautiful and pleasurable and satisfying, which is God himself. And that's why sex will never satisfy ultimately. It will bring you together, but there's always a sense of which it's over. It's finished. It should remind us that there is something far more ultimate that we look forward to. And it's interesting, if I can finish this way, in Song of Songs there's an imagery about the bride and the groom that borrow from the Garden of Eden and the Temple of God. And I think it's deliberate. You see, the Temple of God was decorated like the Garden of Eden and throughout the Old Testament, the Bible writers look forward to Eden being restored and in the Song of Songs, lovemaking is the closest thing to Solomon entering into the Promised Land because sex in some ways is a profound act that points us forward to the day when we're not just united with our spouse but with God. And so marriage and sex should point us forward to the great day when we, as the bride of Christ, are united with him. So whether you're married or single, having sex or not, the Bible says what is ultimate for us is actually not sex, it's God. And we, if I can be slightly naughty, what do we cry in terms of coming? We pray, pray, come Lord Jesus. You see, that will be the day when we will have our minds blown. That will be, if I can say, the climax of history. It won't be in your bedroom, it will be when the Lord Jesus returns. And whether you're married or single, that is what we look forward to, the climax of all climaxes, the Lord Jesus returning. And sex is given now to bring us together Unite us as one, but also to remind us that there is something far more mind-blowing that will one day come and we cry, come Lord Jesus and bring history to a close. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for each other. Whether we're single or married, we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to you. For people who are single, I pray, help them to be find satisfaction in you and the relationships they have for those who are married to draw closer together through this wonderful gift but may we all see that what is ultimate is you and we cry come lord jesus come amen